join me in prayer? Dear Lord, Jesus, Savior, uh, we, could, we could look around in our world and see many things of uh, beauty, of your creation, whether it's uh, just the sunrise, our family, our children, laughter. And I pray that you would just, just pierce our hearts, penetrate our hearts, uh, to know that uh, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of your grace, the beauty of Jesus uh, is more spectacular than anything uh, we can fathom what he has done for us. Girl, I pray for myself uh, that I know the gospel, I know your grace, I know Jesus more, because it is just so easy to get off track, uh, to make a left turn. Uh, in, in our salvation, or our Christian lives. And so I know they're here, there are those here today who may not know Jesus, and I know that there's some that have gotten off track, and I just I pray that uh, your grace, the gospel, Jesus, uh, would shine so bright that it would overwhelm any of, our, any of our arguments, any of our burdens, anything that, anything that we try to do. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. You can have a seat. I thank our worship team, as always, for, for leading us. And uh, I requested that song, Fairest Lord Jesus, for a couple reasons. One was, uh, was the words, and I was going to highlight those. But uh, I was in Honduras a couple weeks ago, and one of my favorites... Uh, one of my favorite times on that trip is actually the bus ride from where we stay. Many of y'all have gone, um, where we stay to the airport. And each time I've been, it's, it's been just a, a beautiful, gorgeous day. And, and a lot of times I'll, I'll just process the trip. I'll put in some headphones. And anyway, this time I had like no music because I'd gotten a new iPhone and all this. And it just erased all my music. So that, that's great. Hundreds of dollars down the drain. Anyway, so... I asked Jack Moriarty, Dr. Moriarty, there you are, bro, and uh, to borrow his, uh, his iPhone, and he had this song, Fairest Lord Jesus, on there, uh, and it was uh, just a beautiful song, and I, I actually, if you know me, I'll listen to songs like over and over again, like 20 times in a row, I know, anyway, but, and so I started listening to it over and over again as we were driving, I was thinking about the things that I'd seen over the past week, and it was just a moment, you know, God... God speaks to me through music. He speaks to many of us through music. And, you know, it was just like God saying, you know, like over everything, over all you see, even the brokenness, you know, is Jesus. And so the words of this song, I don't know if you called them, but uh, I'm going to say this probably every Sunday as we sing, because uh, the words certainly pierce me on all of our worship songs. And, there, you know, there's an artistry to this. I mean, this is an old hymn. Uh, that a poet wrote. I mean, you talk about poetry, you can go to the Psalms. Um, most of the Psalms were sung. Uh, Chris, written songs. I mean, there's a poetry, there's an artistry to our worship. And some of these words, ruler of all nations, of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish. We cherish Jesus. Thee will I honor to thy glory, joy, beautiful Savior, Lord of all nations. Someone loved Jesus so much, they pinned those words. And 
you know, as I, I sing it and as I just go over the words, I mean, I ask myself, do, do I love Jesus that much? That's a big picture of Jesus, almost like cosmic. I mean, ruler of all nations, joy and glory of, of creation. I want to read you something else. And, you know, words have power. The words to a song. Uh, I love reading. I was an English major. And I actually think one of the most beautiful things in this world is a well-crafted sentence. And this was a passage that was written, I believe it was a poem too, called One Solitary Life, written by Dr. James Alexander, 1926. Saying the same thing, fair Lord Jesus does, but in his own words. It reads, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when public opinion turned against him. His friends deserted him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid at a barred grave through the pity of a friend. Yet 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as much as this one solitary life. The question is, do you know him? And that is my question for all of us, do you know him? This series uh, that we're doing in August is called, This Is Your Life. And this is our life, what we have here today. Does this life, your life, know Jesus? Is your life and his life tied together? Do you live in Christ? You know, talk about words and the power of words, whether it's a song, whether it's a poem. It is, uh, it's also amazing to think about that all of creation was created by the spoken word. I mean, in Scripture, Genesis 1, God spoke the world into existence. God spoke a word. Then Jesus came, and actually John writes in... In 1 John, in John chapter 1, the Word, because Jesus, the Word became flesh. The Word of God, the Word spoken, the Word of creation, the Word of life became flesh. And he was writing that to Greeks, and it was a word, logos. And that meaning literally meant life. And he was saying, life. Life in and of itself, life in all there is. Life before there was ever anything became flesh in Jesus. Do you, do you 
A lot of times I use us or we, but do you personally, individually know that life? Is your life intertwined with that life? My wife and I were talking this week. We talk often. But, you know, either one of two things really happens. Some just don't know that life. Some just don't know Jesus. And others of us, we say we know him. We say we got that. You know, check that box. Done all, you know, we're supposed to do to get the fire insurance of heaven and get our sins forgiven. And it is so easy, not just daily, hourly, to go off track, to take a left turn, to get off our walk. And maybe we still got our fire insurance. But we can wait for heaven and we may be living in hell and look perfect at the same time, all at once. Do you know him? Do you love him? You love him enough to not just write those words. We'll hold off on that. Just sing those words in praise and adoration. Cherish. I hope you do. I hope you will. And as we're going through this series, today I wanted to talk about what would that life look like? Whether you have it or not. What, what does a life in Jesus look like? I mean, like practically. We can see it in the word of life. God's Word. So I want to use three passages today, and we're talking about what a, what a life in Christ might look like. So if you have your Bibles, and if you don't, we give them away here at Bellwether. They're right up there. We're going to start with Romans chapter 8, verse 9 through 13. Romans 8, 9 through 13. And let me say this before. I, this is a bold statement. But, you know, that's just what I think, so I can, I can say these things. Romans 8, I mean, actually, all I could do is just say, just read Romans 8 over and over again every day for the rest of your life, and, and you kind of, I mean, that, that's some of the best advice I could give you as a preacher. Romans 8, I believe, is the greatest chapter in God's Word. And that's just not something I think many uh, preachers, pastors, scholars believe that too. We're just going to read... Uh, I don't know, 9 through 13. I'm not a math major. Four verses. But, man, I just, I'd encourage, read Romans 8 and read it again and again and again. People have been saved by just reading Romans 8. But here we go, just a few verses. Romans 8, verse 9 through 13. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. What does life in Christ look like? The first thing out of three would be there is life change. Life change, very simple. Now, you could say, uh, yeah, duh, you know, if I'm saved and have Jesus, of course, you know, your life changes. If you're drinking all the time, automatically you should turn around. Well, that doesn't necessarily happen as I've seen People, you know, get saved, walk down the aisle, 
you know, throwing it all, and then by Wednesday, you know, they're drunk again. Or, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not going to look at that, or I'm not going to look at those images, and hey, I'm saved, and then maybe Thursday or Friday, you know, they're right back where they started. And I could pick other poisons, but those things happen again. Hey, I'm saved, and then, boom, right back into a life of sin. Hey, I got Jesus. Hey, I'm even trying to join a group. Hey, maybe I'm coming to Wednesday night service. Hey, I'm serving and into sin. So, so what, what should happen? I mean, life change, yeah, Jesus in our heart, but like practically, day to day, week to week, you know, how do, we, how do we do this walk? How do we have salvation? How do we have this change? Romans 8 tells us in detail. And the thing about so many sermons... I don't want to say sermons or even Bible stuff. I mean, a lot of times it'll line up things. Hey, I do this. Ten steps to not get that drink. Hey, ten steps to not look at other women. Hey, ten steps to, you know, get more money. Hey, ten steps to have a comfortable life. And it's all based on willpower. I mean, it's all based on, you know, do this. And if we're strong enough and we got a strong enough will, we'll have that comfortable life. And, I mean... Forget, that's, it's, it's hogwash. It's hogwash because I've seen it. And it doesn't work. What I've seen is like people basing their efforts on their will to change their life. And it doesn't work. On like our power. On my power or your power. Willpower. Personal strength. So like, okay, well then, I right, preacher, then what's the answer? The answer is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in a heart, in a life. When we say what Jesus said, we go back, repent and believe the gospel. We say, I, I can't do it on my own. And don't just like get on your knees, you know, at the altars after communion, like on your knees every day. Jesus, I, I can't do this, whatever it is. And this passage, you know, it says it. If you are in Christ truly, then his spirit, I mean the Holy Spirit, dwells in us. I don't know if you like get this, or I don't know if you've thought about this, but we have these unimaginable, unfathomable powers and heavenly riches inside of us with Christ that we can tap into, called the Holy Spirit. And it says, yes, there is resurrection. If he dwells in you, then he who rose Christ from the dead will raise your body too. But it's more too. Look at verse 13. If by the Spirit you... Y'all should underline this verse. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That doesn't say if by your willpower you put to death. It doesn't say if by your intellect, if by rationalizing things out, you put... If by the Spirit. You're like, well, how do I do that? If by the, you know, how does that happen? Well, prayer... But also there is some, there's some thought process we can have. Like when we're doing fleshly things or we're, we're having fleshly thoughts, what if you thought about, like, like this thought or this action, I, I'm literally, and I've thought this, I'm literally stabbing the one who paid it all on the cross, who died for me, who came to rescue me, I'm stabbing him with my flesh, I'm stabbing him with my actions, I'm doing this, that will humble you. That will change you. 
Much more so than, well, I don't need to do this. It's a bad habit. I don't need to do this because it will wreck my life. But if the Spirit of God is in you, and, you know, whatever you're facing, addiction or relationship damage or gossip, and just think about that. There's, a, there's the power of the Spirit in you. And yes, you can pray and you can repent and you can ask and then think. Doing these things, I am, I'm stabbing the Son of God who, who gave it all for me. That will change your life. I, well, you can say, you can test me. I believe it will change your life. And there's life change by the power of the Spirit. What else would a life in Christ look like? Tied to life change? Humility, humility. Another passage, and this is in Philippians. Philippians 2, and I'm going to read verse 5 through 11. Philippians 2. I love hearing those pages turn. That's great. Love it. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 should be on the screen as well. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the last passage, Romans 8, talking about like, you know, I mean bad habits or addictions. Here, humility, let me me hone in on something that well, it probably doesn't, you know, hurt y'all as much as it does me. But it, but it might. Let's talk about criticism. Let's talk when someone criticizes you. Or maybe you catch somebody gossiping about you. Or somebody just talking about you. Maybe talking about your spouse. Or maybe talking about, I don't know, a child. I mean, somebody you hear is critical of you. How does it feel? You can't answer. You don't have to. You know what? I mean, it, it, I mean, it pierces me. It's a stab. To me, it hurts. You know, the response is like, who do you think you are? You know, Mr. So-and-so or, you know, oh, you don't look so good yourself or, or you don't sound so good. You know, I mean, we, we respond. And you know what that is? It's pride. It's pride. And I'm going to actually talk about this more next Sunday. But we really want their approval. When it hurts so bad, we really need our critics we need them for their approval ultimately and we say man you're right for 98 percent but that two percent i'm gonna fight back and so when people criticize us we want to fire back we want to respond we want to be on the defensive i mean it's it's pride it's it's rooted in pride my wife god lover is uh is my strongest critic and, uh, and I love her, love her well. But we used to get in some, uh, it hadn't been a while, I mean, several years, I believe, sweetie. Uh, she's shaking her head. But we used to get in some knockdown drag outs. And she, uh, very sharp tongue, God gifted her with the power of verbosity or verbosity, whatever. And, um, you know, it, it works really well 
after she would roll off, and I'd, say, I'd call her lawyer Linda. Really good. Um, I think we lost some bases over that. But anyway, it's, um, seriously, it's, it's okay. But she and I would we'd get into a verbal exchange and, you know, healthy critiques. And, you know, I just wouldn't want to receive it. And what do you call it, stubborn or hard? It's pride. So I read this passage, humility, humility. You know, we often think of humility as like, you know, let's, you know, be the low man on the totem pole and, you know, be the servant leader and wash everybody's, you know, that's humility. I want to get real with us. Humility is how we respond to our critics. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's your child, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's a peer. Humility comes we, we see it, either we have it or if we don't, when people criticize. And so, I go to this passage, you know, you want humility. I want humility. Jesus, who had it all. I mean, every ruler of nations, Lord of all creation, those things we sing about, sitting at the Father's side, things that we can't fathom had it. And then, he saw our need. He saw our need. That we can't save ourselves. And this passage, in its beauty, says it better, I believe, than any other passage in Scripture. Humbled himself. Taking the form of, of our humanity, but even as a slave. Humbling himself to death. And then God exalted him. And see, when we know that, and we have him in us, man, we, we, one, we should know, man, any gifting we have, whether it's artistry or leadership or, you know, what, whatever gift or sales or, you know, whatever it is or beauty or sports talent, it's a gift. It's not ours. God just, in his wisdom, said, you know, I'm going to give so-and-so this gift. And we can be humble about it. And we can be humble when we know, you know, there's nothing that, that I can do, both me and you, that we can do to save ourselves. And we can humble ourselves, as I talked about last week, to really lift the lid and see what I call the sin beneath the sin. I mean, there are action sins, like when we strike back verbally or, you know, we have these bad thoughts. There's a sin beneath the sin. That sin is pride. That sin is wanting to put ourselves on the throne. And we will just trample over anybody that may want to take us down. The sin beneath the sin. We can't save ourselves. And Jesus has done it. Jesus has done what we could not do. He's paid the price. And if we know that, and I know somebody, I got that. No, but if we know it, we can live with a serene confidence, a humble confidence. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to, like, you know, engage in verbal fights. We just own it. It's like, you know, not perfect. I'm broken, human. But Jesus has done so much for me. And that's why I'm putting my trust, my confidence in him. And he'll save me. And he'll save relationships that you have. If you act that way. Seriously, if you, if you trust in him. Let his power overwhelm you. Let his humility overwhelm you. It'll make you weep. I said that last week. If you really get it. It'll make you weep. There's life change. He'll live a humble life. So there's life change. There's humility. And then there's one other thing. And I want to stress this. There's fellowship. Life in Christ. I'm going to read 1 John. Not John. 1 John. Towards the back of your Bible. 
read four verses. 1 John 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Here John, the apostle, is writing to a church. That's going to be key here in just a second. Writing to a church, and he says, as he opens this letter, verse 1, We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed. We have seen it and testified to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's fellowship. There's fellowship. Now there's first individual fellowship. What does life change in Christ look like? With God, the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. I mean, when we pray, it's not just sending petitions. Hey, I need this. Hey, my son needs this. Hey, my wife needs this. Hey, I need this job. And look, 98% of the time, I think those are our prayers. Life in Christ is you want to you want to pray to, to be in fellowship with God. I mean, you pray because you want to know God better. Just last week, I was having an issue, man. I was, I was just tossing over my head over and over again. And I, I sat down, and I was, I was rocking Ethan to sleep. He went to sleep. And I just started praying. I was like, God, you know, just reveal this situation. Give me clarity on this. And all of a sudden, it was amazing. Like, some things just, just became clear, strikingly, startlingly clear. And that hit me. It's like, you know, fellowship with God. I mean, the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer speaking to you, guiding you. You're in fellowship with the creator of the universe, with the word of life. We have that at our, at our fingertips. What is life change in Christ? It's fellowship with God the Father, His Son, and the Spirit. There's no greater relationship. And look, I want every marriage to be like awesome and, you know, just... You know, so powerful, but there's no greater relationship than that. Fellowship. But then, that's where it gets a little interesting. There's fellowship with one another. And as I said, John was writing this to a church. The church they think of Ephesus, which Paul wrote Ephesians to. And he was saying, I'm writing this to you so you may have fellowship with one another. Fellowship with one another in a church. He, he goes off. He's like, I've, I've seen Jesus. I've touched his hands. I've eaten with him. I've been with him. And then he says, I tell you this so that you may have fellowship with one another. I'd love for y'all to just think about that. Jesus, fellowship in a church. I say that because church is like, church is a messy place. Got a lot of opinions, got a lot of thoughts. We're going to have more opinions when we move in. You know, trust me. We're probably having opinions after we moved in for a year about, well, the sound didn't go right. Hey, this carpet. Hey, pews, chair. You know, all that good stuff. Opinions, that's great. There are messed up people. Hey, I'm one of them. Uh, you're one of them. Hey, you may say, hey, no, I'm perfect. If you're perfect, you probably should go because you'll mess us up. You know what I'm saying? I know, no perfect people allowed everything. But look, we're all these broken people. And in God's foreordained wisdom before the creation of time, he's like, I'm going to do my deal through a church broken up into all these local churches where people 
come to love one another in Jesus. What does life look like in Jesus? We love one another. We bear with one another. Not just their burdens. We like bear with one another. You know what I'm saying? And it's good. And it's okay. And it's like part of the gig. So I know, you know, we've been going five plus years and, you know, they've been like relationship, you know, tit for tats and all that. And usually I'm in the middle of them. It's pastor, great, you know. And it's okay. I mean, I just kind of want to say that, that, you know, man, fellowship with one another. There are going to be, you know, diverse opinions. There's going to be diverse people. And that's good. And we can work it out, not by our own will or how great of a negotiator we are or something like that, by the Holy Spirit and prayer and loving one another. And so my prayer for us, because I've said this and I'll say it again, this is a critical time, this is a, it's an exciting time, but, you know, we're moving and it's also a sensitive time. So just pray that we continue to bear with one another and love one another, maybe love one another for the first time, not just in our efforts or our will, but in Christ. It's life in Christ. And then one last thing. It's fellowship with God the Father and the Son. It's fellowship with one another in the church. And then it's fellowship with those that aren't here. And this is really... I mean, I know I don't have to like preach this to many of y'all... ...because y'all like get this at Bellwether... And, ...and our heart, my heart, my pulse... ...has always been the people who aren't here. It's John 10 and 16, the other. It's, it's with the person who, you know... You know ...isn't talking to anybody at the party... You know, who, you know, the unpopular person, the person left out, that's who I want us to be about, the person left out of church, we want to embrace. We have to remind ourselves over and over again. Fellowship with them. Fellowship in outreach. Fellowship in as you go, in your work, in your family, in your hobbies, at the baseball fields, at the football games we're going to start going to in a month. As we go, are we watching a life in Christ? Watch, what is the Lord doing here? What is the Lord doing in this relationship? What is the Lord doing in this conversation? What is the Lord doing in this tragedy? In this, what is the Lord doing as I've lost my... What is the Lord doing? I love... I, I want you all to have that mindset. I want to have that mindset. And we have to remind us over and over. And you have to preach it over and over again. What is the Lord doing here? Sometimes that will grow our church. Sometimes that will just grow the kingdom. And, and both are good. My wife, use another story of her. She, um, just give you an example, and this is an example that like doesn't you know like grow the church or anything. But there was a, um, she was struck by a story of two young men, uh, two African American men, from uh, one of the Jackson Public Schools. I forget, and I'll say the wrong one. Uh, who graduated last year, and one got into Harvard, and one got into Yale, and so you know South Jackson public school, and so several, uh, I think publications have done some articles on, they've been on CNN or something, and, and anyway, she was struck, and so if you know my wife, she, she really doesn't do anything halfway, so she starts, you know, reading and wants to know all the stories, and, you know, she was telling it to me as we were um, going to sleep one night, and just being struck by one of them, single mom, she got pregnant at 15, so she would be, I think, third, we were trying to do the math anyway, bad math. She'd be 36 now. I can't, I'm 38 to, you know, 36, son in college. And, uh, you know, obviously expensive schools. So, you know, got this great financial aid package or whatever. And 
you know, they were talking about just how hard it was, not academically, but culturally, socially. And the young boy wrote a poem, started with a poem, going to end with a poem today, to his mom, single mom. And I just want to read it to you. And I read it to you because, you know, it makes me think about that other person out there. Who is this other person for you? It's a poem. His name's Travis Reginald. It says, I woke up at three in the morning with a pile of work hadn't touched and deadlines. I, that stand is daunting as skyscrapers. And I think about you, Mom. I'm reminded of how at the end of each conversation, there's this awkward pause where neither one of us can find the strength to say, I love you. It's not that I don't, but rather the only way I could express the way I feel is if I were to place my beating heart in your palms. I remember being in the airport at the beginning of my freshman year in college, suitcase full of insecurities and doubts, with a pocket full of literary tricks up my sleeve and a penchant for smiling my way through everything. But that day, gratitude didn't have enough room in my chest. Nothing could stop the levees in my eyes from breaking. Tears that resembled waterfalls spelled your name on my cheeks and stained my plane tickets. Know this feeling has to be more than love, because words will never be enough to describe a woman whose laugh is like the first meal in a while for a starving child. Mom, you don't give yourself enough credit. You were 15 with a lifetime of dreams tucked away in that precious head of yours until some smooth-talking guy whispered empty promises, took your dreams away as if he was doing you a favor, and gave you a child as a parting gift. Dad... If I would have known that moment was the closest you would ever be to me and mom, I would have forgiven you at conception. But little did I know you had aborted me in your mind. And little did I know that no matter how hard I tried or how far I hid myself in another reality as a child, that eventually you would cross my mind again. Every time I see another boy playing with his father, every time I shave and realize that it shouldn't take this long, Every time I tie slightly off center, because I watched that how to tie a tie video. Too many damn times for my liking. I didn't have anyone to show me how. It's a sad day indeed when you have to Google search how to be a man. I tried to make myself visible, make it impossible for you to ignore me. Do whatever it took to make a headline somewhere. I'd made sure I'd work to the top of my class in the hope you'd hear my graduation speech broadcast across TV. Like I even ran track because I heard you were pretty fast in high school. And if I won something, that would give us something in common besides our first names. But mom, I don't want this to be another sob story. I want you to remember that we lived every God-given moment to the fullest with what we had. We left permanent footprints on shores where everything else was washed away. I don't see life as a struggle, just an opportunity to show what we're made of. So let's take memories past and write them on the face of giants so the world can see. Mother, I will toast your heartbeat that I hear in my dreams at night. Sorry, shouldn't read this iPhone. Anyway, it's a rhythm of hope and reality that I never want to stop moving to. It's a powerful poem, and I read that for a couple reasons. One, you know, it's, a, it's another dude. And you could do a whole sermon, a whole series of sermons on, you know, the fatherless generation and being a dad and being a man. That's another sermon for another day. But, you know, that dude is another person. But more in our present situation is the mom who is 36, who still lives in Jackson, 
And my wife said, you know what? I'm going to reach out to this mom. And, she, and you know, Linda said, you know, it's not about her coming to church and buying. I'm just going to reach out to the mom. Fellowship with one another. What is life in Christ? Life in Christ is seeing severe brokenness and saying, I'm going to try to bring the light in Christ some way, somehow. So we'll let you know how it goes. What do you do now? Life in Christ? Again, I think you're either living it, you either don't have it, or you've gone severely off track. I know some of you have gone severely off track. Some of you here don't have it at all. Some of you do and are taking steps. What do we do? What do we do? The words, going back to word, the words of Jesus. Jesus came. The world was created in a word. The word became flesh. Jesus came preaching. Repent and believe the gospel. What do you do? Every day, repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I want to pray for myself before I pray for these other folks that I would repent and believe the gospel. I pray that I would do that more so than strengths or gifts or arguments or smooth way of saying things or, you know, leveraging relationships, what we all do. I pray I'd repent and believe the gospel. Pray this church would repent and believe the gospel. And there would be life change individually. There would be humility. There would be fellowship with you, our Father, with one another in the church and with the others who so desperately need your light and your love. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. In your name we pray. Amen.